Hi, I am Jennifer Purcell, and welcome to my podcast, Living with an Invisible Learning Challenge, where we will discuss, discover, and learn more about the challenges and triumphs of those with NLD and other learning challenges. I do have a website for this podcast, and it is called livingwithnld.com. I also have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter account for the podcast. They are all under the same name, which is Living with NLD. I also have a YouTube channel for the podcast, which can be found by Googling the title of the podcast, which is Living with an Invisible Learning Challenge. I would like to tell you about a nonprofit that I use for my research for this podcast. It is called the NBLD Project, and I use their blog for my research. They are a nonprofit that is based in New York and is trying to get NVLD back on the DSM, and they provide many resources for people with NVLD on their website. I'll provide you with the website for them in the podcast description. All proceeds from the ads on this podcast will be donated towards the NVLD project. Please feel free to explore the other topics on the podcast, and hopefully you will learn something new from them. I hope you enjoyed today's episodes. All right, so today's interview will be a interview with me and Barbara Aerosmith Young. I'm going to be doing posting this interview because I want to do a break from the interview with Aline and me because I want to start featuring Barbara and her program, Aerosmith, and be able to talk to you about her and her TED Talk that she did in Toronto. So I'll give you a little bit of background about Barbara first before you listen to the interview. So this is uh, from her website. So the genesis of the Aerosmith program of cognitive exercises lies in Barbara Aerosmith Young's journey of discovery and innovation to overcome her own severe learning disabilities. A description of which appears in the article, Building a Better Brain, or in chapter two of the book, The Brain That Changes Itself by Dr. Norman Doji. Diagnosed in the grade one as having a mental block, which today would have been identified as multiple learning disabilities, she read and wrote everything backwards, had trouble processing concepts and language, continuously got lost, and was physically uncoordinated. Barbara eventually learned to read and write from left to right and mask a number of the symptoms of her learning disabilities through heroic effort. However, she continued throughout her educational career to have difficulty with specific aspects of learning. So that is a description for you of who Barbara is and will give you an idea of what this podcast will be about. It will be about her program and how she uses it in classrooms and comparing to how she used her program in classrooms before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic to show those differences 
And I had a lot of fun interviewing her actually, and was really surprised when I got reached out from one of her people that works for her to do an interview with her. I was like, somebody want with a TED talk wants to talk to me. That was so cool. And I wasn't quite sure if it was real at first. I was like, you know, do I want to make sure that this is true? Because I've gotten some emails that are just spam for my podcast before. And so I did my own research about Barbara before interviewing her to make sure that this was a true um, pitch for an interview because usually I'm the one who uh, goes and looks for my interviewees, not the other way around. So I wanted to make sure that it was real. And once I knew that, I responded to the email and set up a time that worked for Barbara and me, and the rest is history. So I'm going to chunk this interview up into 30-minute blocks because it's a little long, and you will be listening to the first part today, and then you'll get the second part in two weeks. So I hope you enjoy the first part with me and Barbara. Okay, so good morning or good afternoon from wherever you're listening. I am here with Barbara Arismuth Young today, and I will have her, um, well, before I have her begin introducing herself, I would like to thank her and her team for reaching out to me to uh, have this interview scheduled and be able to uh, talk to her about her cognitive programs that she uses in the classroom and um, a little bit about her uh, TEDx talk as well. So would like to uh, have you start by introducing yourself and let me let your audience, my audience know a little bit about you. Okay, well, well, thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you and to uh, speak to your listeners. Um, I'm uh, sometimes find it a little hard to describe, you know, what I do and, and who I am. I'm, I'm passionate about the human brain. Mm. I feel like my whole life has been a, a journey of understanding the territory of the human brain, uh, both, you know, how it shapes us um, in terms of our understanding of our world, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of other people, our relationship to all of those. And, to me, what was really promising uh, a number of years ago, recognizing this idea of neuroplasticity. So yes, our brain shapes who we are, but to me, what's really exciting is we can shape our brains. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, if there's a difficulty, uh, you know, when I was growing up, which was quite a while ago in the 1950s, um, there was no belief that our brain could change. Like the, uh -huh. the belief that our brain was fixed at that time and so if we had a problem, we had to learn to live with it. And so this work that I'm currently doing evolved out of my own journey because I was identified in grade one. Uh, I had significant learning difficulties. And at a certain point, I thought there has to be a different approach. Like I, I wasn't satisfied just with compensating because that took so much energy and effort. And yes, there was benefit. And so that led me on a journey to put research together to create um, programs to stimulate 
functions in the brain, which then leads to better learning, better social emotional well-being. Um, and currently my mission is to make this work accessible around the world. So we work with educators in I think 13 different countries. Um, wow to make make the work accessible. So kind of in a long-winded way, uh, who am I? I'm, I'm the director and founder of Aerosmith Program, and I use Aerosmith as my middle name. And my grandmother, it was her, um, her name, uh, and she was a pioneer in a different yeah. way. So I feel like this was, this was pioneering work when I started out because it flew in the face of what people understood uh, thinking that the brain was fixed and if there was a problem, you couldn't do anything. And now we know that's not the case. But when I started, we didn't know that. So um, so whether I'm neuroeducator, I do research, um, and I'm, I'm just passionate about uh, how we can support individuals, whether they're five-year-olds or 95-year-olds, uh, to enhance cognition, to have a better quality of life. So that's that's who I am. That sounds wonderful. Um, I'm also very passionate about uh, research and how it um, can help people with uh, learning challenges, just like with you, no matter what age they are. And um, maybe you can tell me a little bit more about uh, neuroplastic neuroplasticity <laughs> and um, how you heard about it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so it was it was interesting. It was in actually 1977. I remember it very, very well because it was kind of one of those pivotal moments that that changed the direction of of my life. I was in I was in graduate school studying school psychology, doing my mm -hmm. master's degree, and no accident. I mean, I was really trying to understand what was what were my problems because I had struggled all the way through my schooling, you know, very significantly. And so someone handed me a book um, in, in that summer when I was at graduate school called The Man with the Shattered World. And this mm. told the story of a Russian soldier who in World War II had a very localized brain injury uh, due to shrapnel in his brain. And this book was um, this Russian soldier, Leo Zazetsky, telling his story of kind of what what were his struggles? What could he no longer do? And then Luria, Alexander Luria, who is a brilliant Russian neuropsychologist, describing what was happening in this man's brain. And as I read this book, I thought, oh my gosh, this is me. Like I, I mm. knew I didn't, have, I didn't have shrapnel in my brain, but since birth, these parts of my brain hadn't worked the way they were designed to work. Because as this man was writing about, you know, he couldn't understand fractions. I'd never been able to understand fractions. He couldn't tell time. Like he could do these things before the injury. Now he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't read an analog clock because he couldn't understand the relationship between the hour hand and minute hand. Mm -hmm. I was 25 years old. I couldn't understand. I couldn't read clock. I couldn't tell time because I struggled with that same difficulty. So this was the first piece of, of the journey was now I know what my problem is. It's part of my brain or for me, it was multiple areas of my brain that that were under functioning or underperforming for some reason, which were interfering with the learning process. So I thought, okay, now I know what the problem is, but what do I do about it? Hmm. And this is where, at the same time, came across research coming out of Berkeley, uh, Mark Rosenschweig's work with rats. And what he demonstrated was that rats had neuroplasticity. 
So he put rats in a really enriched environment, lots of toys to play with, you know, things to climb over, exercise wheels. And what he discovered um, was the rats that got all this extra stimulation, their brains changed physiologically and they were better huh. at mazes. So the, the brain changed, changed, which led to improved performance of learning compared to the rats that just had a whatever normal rat environment is. And that's when the light bulbs went off for me. I thought, okay, if rats have neuroplasticity, surely humans must have mm -hmm. neuroplasticity. And at that time, again, this was 1977, you know, I went to my professors. I said, hey, you know, I think I understand what my challenges are because I was really struggling. And I think it's, you know, my brain. And I think maybe I can do something about it. And I was told by all my professors, uh, Basically, they said, first of all, there's no neuroplasticity, or if it exists, it kind of stops at age 10. Well, I was definitely mm. old, age 10 at that point. And then they also said, and learning difficulties aren't necessarily related to the brain. I mean, again, this was 1977, and that was the belief system. But I was very lucky. I had a father that was very wise. He was an inventor and a scientist. And he had told me many years before, he said, if there's a problem in the world, and no solution. He said, it's your responsibility to go out and try to find a solution. And then he said, if the world tells you you can't do it, don't listen. He said, this is how science goes forward. So I thought, okay, these people are saying X, but I don't need to listen. I could be totally wrong, but I think this is a reasonable hypothesis. And what do I have to, you know, to lose but time? And I was struggling so much anyway. So I thought maybe I can create exercises or programs or tasks that make those parts of my brain work that are underperforming. Just like, you know, if you go to a physiotherapist and you have a very specific injury in a very specific area, they're going to give you exercises for that area, not a different area, right? They're yeah. not going to tell you use a different area to compensate. They're going to try to stimulate and work the where the underperforming um, muscles or tendons or whatever they are. And so I thought, okay, I need to try to create an exercise that's going to make that part of my brain work really, really hard to see, can I stimulate, you know, neuroplasticity? And so I started the first exercise using clocks, not that I wanted to learn how to tell time, which I did, and now I can read a clock, but I wanted to make my brain process relationships because Luria talked about somebody with the difficulty I had couldn't process relationships. They couldn't do cause and effect. They didn't have insight. I had no insight into why things happened. So socially, my life was, you know, a real challenge because I didn't understand why people did things. So the idea was if I can make my brain process relationships over and over and over again, and then make those relationships more complex by adding additional hands, so a third hand and a fourth hand, maybe it would be like weightlifting for my brain. And mm. what I found was I got to a certain level in that exercise. And it was like the, the fog lifted, the, the, you know, everything changed in my world. And it was all of a sudden I was living proof that yes, there was human neuroplasticity, which only made sense. And now we know it's obvious. Yes, there is. But at that time it wasn't because after I got to a certain level of the exercise, it was, I could listen to people's conversations. Like before I would listen to what somebody was saying and I would smile because I didn't really understand. 
and hope they didn't ask me a question because I probably wouldn't understand. And then I would memorize it because I had a really good auditory memory. So I would memorize, I would walk away and like a little tape recorder, I would play that conversation over and over again. And then maybe two hours later, I'd say, oh, that's what that person was talking mm. about. And that's what they meant. But that person didn't wait those two hours for me to understand. So it was very lonely. I wasn't really part of, you know, human discourse because I didn't understand in real time. So I talked about I lived in lag time. I was always hours before behind everybody else in getting things. And sometimes I never got them. So now I could listen to somebody and understand as they were speaking. And I could actually interject an appropriate comment, understand their response. For the first time, I was part of human discourse. And that was profound, more profound than now I could understand mathematics, which was great. Now my reading comprehension improved because I could read material and understand it. Um, but I could have conversations and understand people and relate to people. So to me, that's what's so profound about you know, changing the brain is it's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. It mediates our whole relationship with, you know, sense of self, sense of others, relationships. And because I have a really strong um, visual memory, every night as I would be drifting off to sleep after doing this exercise, scenes would play in my mind's eye from like grade one, grade two, grade three. And I would think, oh my gosh, that's why that happened. That's why this person did that. And it felt like, um, you know, I talked about how I had a very fractured and fragmented sense of myself. It felt like all these puzzle pieces that didn't fit together. And over that process, it felt like all these pieces started to come together into a coherent human being, right? It, it was really profound. So again, much more than just academic changes. Um, so that to me proved our brain is capable of change and that change can be very, very profound. So then I went and created more exercises. I had a spatial problem. I couldn't read maps. I always got lost. Um, whenever I went someplace new, I added in what I call lost time. So I'd always give myself an extra half hour to get lost several times before I found where I was supposed to go. So I couldn't read maps. Um, so I created a different exercise for that part of my brain. Now I travel all around the world. I can read maps. I can navigate. Um, and then I had a part of the brain <clears throat> that controls um, knowing where, you know, one part of your body is in space and really registers sensation. So for me, I struggled, you know, if, if I put my left hand on a hot burner, my brain would tell me pain because it registered the sensation, but it didn't register the location of the sensation. So mm -hmm. most people, your brain, you know, you put your hand on a hot burner and immediately you pull it off because the brain <clears throat> tells you where those where that pain signal is coming from. Right. My brain didn't. So I learned very early that I had to watch the left side of my body to be safe, right? And so I created an exercise for that um, because it was kind of, I was a danger to myself. And now I can register sensation on the left side of my body, right? It, it, you know, I know where that left side of my body is. I'm not clumsy. And growing up as a child with that difficulty, I was not good at sports, right? Because obviously, if you don't know where your body is in space and you're on a baseball team, um, 
you know, you're not really an asset to that team. So I was always the last child picked for any sports activity at school. So, you know, for me, I struggled academically, I struggled socially, and I struggled in sports. So there was kind of no place that I really fit in in my schooling. And after I created these exercises and saw the benefit, my world just opened up. I mean, I don't know how else to, to describe that. And then I thought, this is amazing. I don't want to just be the person that benefits from this. I want to help other people. And that's how this work was born. And I started a school in Toronto, which is where I'm from in Canada. Mm. Um, and then a number of years later, I thought, I have to take this work out of just my school in Toronto. And I have to work with educators uh, around the world to be able to um, reach children in their schools. And so that's kind of what we do is we work with um, schools, educational organizations, also um, learning centers uh, to bring this work to students in different parts of the world. And uh, so we train those educators, uh, we support them. We have a big support system. We have all the exercises, we track all of the student data, we do ongoing professional development, because our commitment is to the individual that's engaged with the work. And to do that, we have to support the people that are delivering the work. So, um, so I'm, I'm passionate about that, you know, and I travel now a great deal. Um, you know, doing presentations, talking to schools, talking to educators, really, yes, I, I just want to make, I want to make this work accessible um, everywhere to help, you know, individuals like me that, that struggled, and it can help individuals beyond just learning difficulties. We now are working in regular classrooms in schools, uh, not students that are not identified as having learning difficulties, and we're seeing improvements in cognition. Mm. If, if we can stimulate the brain and improve cognition, it improves learning and social emotional well-being, whether one has a learning difficulty or not. They're, of they're course. So that's, yes. And, and to me, this idea of neuroplasticity, which just means our brain is capable of change, and it can change both in positive ways, and it can also change in negative ways. You know, the positive ways are the things that we want to focus on. And the things that change it negatively are the things we want to reduce, like stress, you know, chronic stress, um, you know, so like meditation, um, gratitude, you know, there's research to show even doing five minutes of gratitude a day uh, reduces cortisol, reduces stress, um, getting good sleep, good nutrition, good exercise, all the things that we know that are, are healthy for our body are also healthy for for our brain. So um, I just think we need to be good stewards of our, our brain health. I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, when you were talking about your uh, experience with your academics and social situations and um, your challenges, I, I can definitely relate to all of those because I have um, NLD or nonverbal learning disability. And um, I also have challenges with social situations and understanding those. And um, I never was good at math. I had to have many tutors to get better at math. Um, and I also have a visual spatial problem where when I'm driving, like mm -hmm. you with the maps, I mm -hmm. always get lost. So I can relate to that lost time. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
even if I use a GPS, you know, um, I still somehow get lost. Um, so I can definitely relate to that. And um, I'm glad that you didn't listen to your professors in college and that you were able to create programs for you and for other people. Um, you were already going into this a little bit when you were talking about the programs you use in the classrooms, but um, maybe you can explain kind of what the programs are about and um, usually how long they run. Sure. So we have multiple ways to deliver the work because mm -hmm. what I do is when I go out and talk to people around the world, I listen very deeply to what will work in their environment. So one of the models is exactly what you're talking about is in the classroom um, where the students 30 minutes a day, five days a week are working on one cognitive exercise. So just like, you know, they have a 30 minute period to do reading or a 30 minute period to do math, they do a 30 minute period uh, on a cognitive program. And what I've designed is um, programs that I believe are developmentally appropriate for that grade. So in grade one, you know, students have to learn how to write. Uh -huh. So, you know, that motor planning uh, to make writing automatic. And it's also motor planning in the eye and eye tracking for reading. So we, we have a program um, for that. And we've done a, a lot of research showing, you know, students that are engaged in that exercise versus students that are not improve in their written accuracy, their written fluency, uh, their speed of writing, um, being able to copy, you know, text or copy from the blackboard, all of that. So, you know, you see these students 30 minutes a day, they pull out their exercise. And this is, is because it's, um, motoric and involving the writing process that involves, you know, some writing patterns that they're learning automatically that are stimulating that part of the brain. Then in grade two, we move into a, a different exercise that's related to visual memory for symbol patterns, because in grade two, they start to really um, learn how to read, learn how to spell. And so this is the part of the brain that, you know, if you think of the word cat, you close your eyes. Can you see that word cat almost like on a blackboard in mm -hmm. your mind's eye? So that's that part of the brain that holds visual symbol patterns. And if we enhance that, reading becomes easier, spelling becomes easier, any kind of visual memory learning. So even learning math formula, chemical equations, um, because it's almost like a, you know, a snapshot that a camera takes and holds and then retains so you can build on, you know, the next symbol pattern that you're learning. So we have an exercise there that the students do, again, 30 minutes a day in their classroom. And this one is a computer-based program. So uh, we have, I think, I don't know, 40 plus languages that are built into the program wow. because we want to use different symbol patterns. If we mm -hmm. used English, students could put meaning to it. They could put sound to it. The idea with a cognitive exercise is we want to take away familiarity, right? Because if there's familiarity, they can use other parts of the brain to compensate for that area. Mm -hmm. So if you use novel symbols, they can't put sound to it. They can't put meaning to it. And we have a whole process that the students start with fairly simple symbols, going to very complex symbols. And they have a process where they go through that they have to visually memorize them. And by the end of that program, the students can look at a word, close their eyes, visualize it. Like they, they can learn spelling patterns, uh, reading patterns. So, you know, and again, we have lots of research showing that because the idea is we're not teaching a skill. We're not teaching content. We're exercising the brain to strengthen it 
to then be able to learn the skill or the content. So it's, it's kind of going under the learning process to provide the cognitive substrates to support the learning process. And then in grade three, I think we, we have a program for numeracy and quantification, understanding number, um, really, really important for numeracy. Uh, so again, 30 minutes a day, the students work on that. Grade four, we go into reasoning. So each grade, these students just 30 minutes a day, and it's just a normal part of their curriculum. And what I really like about that model is we know in every single classroom, there will be some students with learning difficulties, right? Mm -hmm. But given everybody's doing the cognitive exercise, there's no stigma. It's just the idea that, that it's just normal. We can enhance cognition. So we're all doing this, um, you know, in the classroom together. Uh, and so it, it removes that stigma because there's still, my experience is there's still stigma out there, you know, attached to somebody having a learning difficulty, which makes me very sad, but yeah, it is where we are. And this removes it because yeah, we go to school to learn and we learn with our brain. So let's stimulate our brain as we're learning to make the learning process more efficient, more fun, more enjoyable. So that's that's sort of the process. So that's one model that, that we're doing. And we're doing research showing um, students that are engaged in that model uh, um, significantly improve on cognitive domains like processing speed, uh, selective attention, um, as I said, you know, written output compared to students that aren't doing those. So we've got research with, you know, control groups. Um, and then we have models, you know, for some students that need more, um, more work, right, mm -hmm. that, that may have, you know, multiple areas of learning difficulty like I did. So then we have a cognitive classroom that operates in the school. Uh, it's going all day with a teacher that's trained in that classroom and students come in and out over the course of the day. So there could be students in, from grade one to grade eight in that classroom at the same time because they're all in there working on their own cognitive programs. And it becomes like a, you know, that um, one room schoolhouse kind of concept. And it's really quite lovely. And they come in and out as, as they need, right? So a student might be in just for one additional period, they might be in for two additional periods, uh, and then they're back in the rest of the day in their regular classroom. And the idea is as they're strengthening their brain, might take one year, two years, three years. It, it really depends on what we're working on and the number of cognitive areas. But the end goal is that they're fully integrated back into their regular classroom with strengthened cognitive abilities mm -hmm. and they don't need any more work. Like they just then, they've, they've strengthened the brain. The brain is now doing what it's designed to do. It's learning in the regular classroom and they just continue on with the rest of their um, academic career. And that's, so that's the the models that I would like to see in schools everywhere, that there are those two models working simultaneously. Every child benefits in the regular classroom and the children that need a bit more um, exposure have that opportunity in the cognitive classroom. And they just kind of flow nicely um, back and forth as, as required. And then COVID hit, right, a few yeah. years ago, and schools shut down around the world. Like, you know, our, our program was all in person, like, you know, this, the children were coming to schools in different countries, different cities, um, and all of a sudden, 
the doors were closed. So mm. what did we do? Because we had these students all around the world that needed to have access to the program. So we worked our software developers and within three weeks, we had a version that could be delivered online. And we've certainly, oh, I know it was pretty amazing. But <laughs> we've worked, I mean, we were working flat out and we've worked um, since then to refine and improve, you know, our online um, delivery. And I'm a big data geek, so I always track data to ensure that if we operate in a new way, are we getting the same results, like are mm -hmm. the benefiting in the same way? So we analyzed hundreds of thousands of data points over, you know, the year of, of COVID or year and a half, however long it was that schools were, were closed. And what we saw were getting exactly the same results, which was really exciting Yeah, um, because this work is is different than curriculum like it's it's really um it's there's a lot of mastery motivation built in there's lots of goal setting attainment you know the student is knowing what they're working on and why they're doing it um so to me that was really encouraging and when we saw that you know we felt confident that we can continue once schools went back in person we could continue to also offer the online virtual classroom model. And again, now that makes it accessible to students that live in the city where the program doesn't exist physically. So again, it's my commitment to make this work accessible is to keep you know, developing delivery models that will reach um, more individuals who can, can benefit from, um, you know, from this work. So that's that's what I'm excited about and getting the same quality of, of results. And we work with researchers both in Madrid and Spain, in Canada and the United States, um, looking at the outcomes. We just um, analyzed data from the last two summer programs that we have. So last year and the year before and seeing really significant cognitive changes like working memory, um, you know, all sorts of executive function measures, uh, also on emotional intelligence. So mood, we use the immediate mood scale. You know, individuals' mood improves because they feel better about themselves because mm -hmm. they function more effectively in the world. I mean, I certainly know for myself, you know, my parents could say, wow, you're an amazing person. We love you. But I would walk into that classroom and the feedback was very different or my experience was very different. You know, I could look around the classroom and see other people learning how to read, learning how to write, you know, learning how to do mathematics, learning how to understand things, learning how to have friends. And I just sat there confused, right? So yeah, um, yeah so that's, that's my passion is really making this work accessible. So, um, you know, people can have a positive, not just a positive, learning experience in school, but throughout life and relationships. And I think more compassion, maybe like, you know, if you, if we can understand how we operate um, and understand that, you know, we can change cognition, we can have more compassion for ourselves and compassion for other people. Of course. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. I wish I had those programs when I was in school. <laughs> I think I would have been easier for me to uh, get through it because I was also very lonely and it was mm -hmm. hard for me to do sports as well and trying to um, like I said earlier trying to uh, do well with writing and math um, 
I remember crying a lot and just like, why isn't this making sense? <laughs> it sounds very familiar. I spent a lot of time crying too, right? Yeah. Um, I also want to mention to you that I just launched my podcast swag on Wednesday of this week and have a page for it on my website. And I will also send you the link to it in the podcast description. And I will also send it to you in the newsletter that I usually send on out on Fridays. I am now selling t-shirts, water bottles, and a backpack and they all have the podcast logo and title on it and the tagline. So I am looking forward to watching the sales and seeing who buys them and um, spreading the word more about my podcast. And today I am very excited to announce that BetterHelp is now sponsoring this podcast. I have had seven years of therapy, so I know it can help change your life if you not only let it, but work on the personal goals that you set with your therapist. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are the greatest asset. And special offering to listeners of Living with an Invisible Learning Challenge, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash I'll put in the link in the podcast description for you. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-E-P. Thanks again to BetterHelp for supporting, I mean, sponsoring this podcast. As I wrap up, there are some things I would like to share with you. I do have a website for this podcast. It is called livingwithnld.com. I also have a Facebook and Instagram page for this podcast. It is called Living with NLD. I will include the links for those in the description. In conclusion, I would like to hear from my audience. If you know individuals with NLD that I could interview for this podcast, please email me at livingwithnld at gmail.com. What are you interested in learning about NLD? I know I'm not an expert, but I do know I have the living experience of having it. 
I would like you to practice journaling about your gifts and differences. Also see if there is a way that you can make that difference become easier for you to do than it originally was. Thank you for listening today and please go to my YouTube channel and subscribe to it. Thank you. Bye.